Today, you will hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the positive effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo, and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. Every time I hear the term, the hair on my neck stands up, especially in a time and an experience like a, the COVID pandemic, we needed people to be sol- you know, in solidarity with each other. We did not need them to be isolated. You know, you can be socially connected and physically distant. The term got out there. Um, the Public Health Agency of Canada corrected themselves, but it's too late. <laughs> they started saying physical distancing, but it was too late. You know, too many people are still saying social distancing. I just find that unfortunate. It's the product of not talking to people in the community before you put into place measures. We have a great show for you. This is podcast. You know, I'm a lucky guy. Every month I get the opportunity to sit down and talk with some of the most engaged and inspired leaders in our community, and today is no exception. Today my guest is Ken Monteith, the Executive Director of Coxida, the Coalition of Quebec Community Organizations in the Fight Against AIDS, who's also on the Organizing Committee of AIDS 2022, the International AIDS Conference happening in Montreal as we speak, I believe, by the time this airs. And with Coxida as one of the main local organizational partners, he's a busy guy. So I'm thrilled that uh, he has chosen to be with us today. Trained as a lawyer, he holds degrees in industrial relations and common and civil law from McGill University and was a member of the Quebec Bar from 1991 to 2001 when he resigned to devote himself more fully to his community work on HIV and AIDS. He is an active participant in HIV research, especially projects concerning the quality of life of people living with HIV and prevention for men who have sex with men. Ken, welcome to Podcast. Thank you. You know, I want to start with a little bit about Coxida, for those listeners who might not be familiar with the organization. So what is it they do? And like, what's the mission of Coxida? Okay. Well, Coxida was uh, founded in 1990. Several organizations in Quebec already existed, but they were at a regional level, and they needed a voice, which in Quebec we refer to as the national level, which means all of Quebec. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So they needed a national voice to interact with uh, public health on a provincial level and beyond the borders of Quebec as well. And then we have developed various areas of action, including developing communications tools that the the members can use for their interventions, especially in prevention, but in other areas as well. We do uh, community-based research. Uh, we do training for the people who work in the organizations so that everybody is on the same page when it comes to their interventions on HIV. And we have a whole sector on human rights. So two aspects. One, a legal information service for individuals who uh, 
have a problem in respect to their uh, HIV status and the respect of their rights. And the other is more of an advocacy position to uh, to really change the rules that aren't working. Oh. So what would you say that would have been the, like, the biggest impact that COGSEED has had over the last, say, 10 years? I think the biggest thing that we've done is really bring the groups together to share a voice and share their opinions so that whoever is listening to uh, the community organizations in Quebec um, is hearing the same story from everyone. And one other little project that I did not mention, little um, but important, is uh, called the Cercle Orange. It's a service that matches people who don't have health care coverage because they don't have status, because they might be a student, um, but they don't have access to the healthcare system. And it matches them with doctors who can follow their HIV. We've also have a network that includes a lab follow-up, and we use the uh, programs of the pharmaceutical companies to make sure they get treatment. Oh. So we have over 100 people who are undetectable because of this program. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Now, how, how long have you been with Coxida? I've been there since uh, 2008, so quick math, 14 years. (laughs) (laughs) And loving every minute of it. Yes. (laughs) Um, So let's talk a little bit about AIDS 2022. And I, I, you know, with the world at your doorstep, is it a blessing or a curse being at the helm of a major organizational (laughs) partner? Well, I think it's both. First of all, I think uh, signing on, I had no idea how many committees I would automatically be a part of and how much background work there would be. The organizing committee itself is really very little um, in terms of the work that's involved. But receiving the world in Montreal gives us also a unique opportunity to have attention from the people who live here. All right. (laughs) So from our governments, from the media, suddenly it's not December 1st and the media cares about HIV. Right. Which is good. Yes, that's very good. And are you are you having like tours around the various organizations or with Coxita, like office tours, things like that? Well, what we did is the conference solicited what they call educational tours. And so we made sure that our local members were involved in that in offering uh, visits for delegates to the conference. The okay. thing probably more important that we're doing in the context of the conference and, and the general population here is we're going to offer guided tours of the global village that's in the conference. So anyone from the general public can go to that, but it might be a little intimidating just to walk into a big space like that. So we thought we would soften that and help people from the general public to come and discover what's happening in HIV. Oh, that's fantastic. And so what excites you? I mean, it's in your town, you're a major partner. What's exciting you about this conference? I do find that these conferences can be highly overwhelming. You know, there's just so much stuff. And having a role in more of it than I did when I went to the one in Toronto, it's even more overwhelming. And I'm, I haven't really even looked at the program yet to see what things I want to go see. I have some ideas about what's going to be interesting news that comes out of the conference. Right. All that stuff about long-acting uh, treatment and PrEP, which is going to be very interesting. There's going to be stuff about simplifying treatment. It's always interesting to follow also the work on vaccines and the cure. Um, so those are very interesting things. And then this year in particular, 
there's going to be stuff about COVID and the impact of COVID on the response to HIV and maybe how we might have applied the lessons from HIV to the COVID experience. So I think those are interesting things that are going to come out of this conference. Yeah. I, 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 would you think there'll be stuff on monkeypox at this conference? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Late breaker. You know, and our public health has also announced that anyone who is coming to the conference can get their monkeypox vaccine. That's oh, really? I'm, yeah. I may get mine. Indeed. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you, because you, you, when I go to conferences, I always feel, you know, it's confusing. There's so much. There's so much to do. And I was going to ask you, like, what approach do you take? Do you spend a night and go through the program or you just kind of wing it? I think, you know, at this point, I have many commitments on my time. So right. I'm probably going to look at the program for those times where I'm available <laughs> and see what right. might interest me. Yeah, I've participated in a couple of Afravia conferences, which is the Francophone International Conference. Mm -hmm. And I do find that that's what we need to do. You know, you, you look for the people you know who are presenting, who um, you can be there to support, but you can also understand what they're doing. But you also look for the subjects that are interesting. And, you know, there's always a lot of really interesting things. And... I just like to, just for my own self-care, just like to not be too demanding on myself. Right. Yeah, yeah. So program breaks, things like that. You yeah. don't have to see it all. It's impossible to see it all. <laughs> and luckily, associated with the conference, there's a positive lounge. So oh, as great. an HIV-positive person, there's this little retreat to go to <laughs> That's um, away from the bustle of the conference. Yes. Do you think that there'll be... Because usually there is, especially at the international conference, there's some sort of activist disruption or something going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's wise to disclose what I might know already because we don't want anyone to stop it. Right. But by the time this <laughs> airs, I, oh no, it'll still be time yeah, to stop yeah. it. <laughs> so that's good, though. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, in order to capture attention, people try to be creative about their, uh, their interventions. So there will definitely be the classic things, but also, you know, some innovative things. You know, I know of a group that's developing uh, handheld fans with messages on them so that they can, you know, there'll be motion in the room oh. and the message will be there. And we have something uh, particular planned uh, as well to underline the problems that we've had with people coming from countries who need visas to get here. Oh, because right. that has been a big problem. Delays and refusals of people because uh, the, the person in the embassy doesn't think the person will leave Canada at the end of their visit. Right, 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 right. I, I look forward to these. Well, I don't know if look forward is the right word, but <laughs> I kind of I look forward to these disruptions. Would you consider yourself an activist? Well, a bit. I, f I feel like I... At this point, I'm probably a little more sedate than that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I have a vague memory of a long time ago when we there was a, a conference in town and we marched to the offices of the public health agency and we did a die-in, but we're all a little old. And so we took our time to descend to the, to the ground. <laughs> Nobody dropped down because <laughs> we didn't want any broken hips. <laughs> So I think that I often, in my work, I often take a much more diplomatic approach than an activist approach. Right. But I'm game for some activism. 
I mean, is there a tension being an executive director uh, and how you present yourself? Is there a tension there? Oh, I think so. I think that I have a style as well. So that we usually in HIV, we have a seat at the table. And that's an important thing we want over the years. When I'm at that table, I think that I can make a point without being rude and without being disruptive. Right. You know, I think that's important to me that we continue to collaborate because the other people around the table are our allies. You know, what's not our allies is the procedures that they are bound up in, but it's our role to point that out and to work with them to change those things. Right. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere along the way, you made the shift from law to HIV sector. And I'm trying to figure out the timing, but I wonder, how did you get there? You know, when I went to law school, first of all, I started in 1984. I always like to say, I think that my first day of law school was the day after the Mulroney government got elected for the first time. And that allowed me to look around the room and see who was smiling and who wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and identify who might be my friend. (laughs) <laughs> right, right yeah. but I went to law school with the idea that I was going to do something useful you know I was going to equip myself to do something useful in society not to not to go get rich and not to become right. a real estate lawyer right that was my orientation for the whole time and after I finished I never really I didn't work in any kind of private practice I started working for a youth uh, community organization And I was giving legal information to members of the community. Right. And also working on workshops to offer to students largely in alternative high schools about their rights and about uh, different aspects of the law and how it might affect them. I did that for four years, and it was part-time, so I was working somewhere else part-time. That was very demanding. And also at the the time, the fun part was uh, we had a program called the do-it-yourself divorce program and so i would teach people how to prepare their own divorces their own consensual divorces so they didn't have to pay a lawyer to do that they would prepare all the papers we would sign the papers and they would go file the papers and have it the easy way oh the easy way is always good yes so after after four years of that the uh, executive director of the youth organization left and I became a candidate for executive director. And, oh. so, and then I became the, the executive director. Now, you know, I was there, I was executive director for five years. So I had nine years total at this organization, which is very feminist and very uh, oriented to consensual decision-making, like real consensus, mm-hmm. and uh, a collective management model. So it, it's very odd to be the executive director of a collective where you don't really have any power but you have all the responsibility <laughs> right. but it really changed the my approach to how groups make decisions and uh-huh. i think that'll stay with me forever oh that's a great lesson yeah. so then while i was the executive director i had my hiv diagnosis and i always like to say that i'm the cautionary tale and not the example to follow because i was diagnosed very late I had a CD4 count of four. I had the PCP pneumonia. So it was you know, zero to AIDS in one doctor visit. Right. <laughs> um, then a couple of years later, you know, it was a good place to, to, to find out I had HIV because I had the support of the group. And it was, you know, it was a supportive working environment. And then 
Uh, two years later, the executive director of a local uh, English-speaking AIDS organization left, and I presented myself for that, and that's how I went into AIDS full-time. Wow, that's uh, quite a story. When we spoke last time, you had mentioned that you like to sort of position yourself as privileged when you tell your story. And I thought that was a really great practice. Why is that so important, do you think? I think it's important for me because I've had, you know, despite the fact that I was diagnosed very late, I've really had the, the fairy tale experience of living with HIV. First of all, you know, I'm an educated white man in North America. Um, I have access to all the treatment I need. I have a supportive group of friends and family. So I have all the advantages to help me live well with HIV. And I always think of the people who don't have those advantages. So there are a lot of people who don't have family support, who don't have a network of, of friends who can help them who don't have, you know, I mean, my reflex as an educated, uh, as a, an overeducated person is if someone in the pharmacy tells me something is wrong, well, I will, I'm willing to argue it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I know where to look to find the arguments. Right. I think it, it becomes my duty to do those things for the people who can't. And, you know, and it's important for me to recognize that my experience of HIV is not everybody's experience of HIV. And for some people, it's a lot more difficult. And so it's very important for me to remember that when I do my work. Right. You, I mean, you gave a great example of, I'm doing air quotes, but air, being overeducated helps you sort of advocate for yourself in many ways. So uh, how has your, do you think your schooling, your legal training sort of prepared you for the work you're doing now? I think, I think that law school was very important. <laughs> Law school taught me how to read, <laughs> how right. to read quickly to grasp the concepts of what I was reading, because there is so much reading in law school that right. you won't survive if you don't manage it. But it also uh, helped me to construct arguments. It helps me to write as well. Right. And, and for me, law school at McGill was important because a good portion of that reading I was doing was in French as well. So the case reports are in French. So it really helped me develop my more formal French, which is invaluable to me today. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Now, you are also a blogger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an iffy blogger these days. But. Well, yeah, but I read your, you know, a lot of your, your blog, and you know, it's titled Talk to the Hump, The Ravings of a Gay Man Living with HIV and Lipodystrophy. And on the blog, you write what you call AIDS adversaries, sort of like personal reflections on the anniversary of your diagnosis, and written in the most charming and insightful way, I have to say. And you do movie reviews and and uh, have some standalone articles on certain issues. So I just want to chat about some of these issues, if, okay. if that's okay. Um, but first off, I want to talk about lipodystrophy because you're very upfront about it and you joke about it. It's in your, it's in your blog title. And... For those of you who are unaware, lipodystrophy ref refers to changes in body fat that it can affect some people living with HIV, either a buildup or a loss of body fat. And as far as I know, like the actual cause is not completely understood. They think it's medication, but not sure. So is that, am I true so far? What do you, what you would Yeah, I think probably 
There are all kinds of things that it isn't just lipodystrophy that makes me the shape I am today. I owe a lot to laziness as well. <laughs> but, but it really started for me. It really started when I started to be disturbed by it. I hadn't gained as much weight as I have, but I had started to develop a hump. Right. So that was associated with one of the drugs that I was taking at the time, or maybe more. Um, mostly the pharmaceutical companies spent a lot of time pointing fingers at each other. Uh-huh. That was their response to lipodystrophy. Then it wasn't our product, it was theirs. Right. Or, you know, this is a natural thing. But I thought that it, you know, it was important to, you have to laugh at things. If you can't laugh, you, get, you might as well give up. Well, <laughs> it's very important, but I also don't think lipodystrophy is spoken about enough. Um, is, is there a treatment? Is there medication for lipodystrophy? Well, there are treatments for lipo, not for lipoaccumulation, like I have, but for, what's the opposite of accumulation? It's the other, the other aspects of lipodystrophy that I haven't, yeah. So there are a lot of people who had fat loss in their cheeks, for example, and they became, you know, it became very visible, you know, a face of, of HIV. And there were some treatments, but they're considered cosmetic. You know, it really had an impact on people. And there are people who have done research on the impact of lipoatrophy, that's what it's called, um, on uh, people's quality of life. People tended to isolate themselves because they didn't want to be pointed at and sort of have their status disclosed for them right. uh, by their faces. So there were treatments and they were kind of fillers. They weren't permanent. Some of them had problems later on, and they were expensive. Yeah. Now, I think there was a foundation for a while that helped pay for that, but not, not in a continuing way. Yeah. It's a tough situation. I, I know somebody with, who had lipoatrophy. is that what you said? Yeah, lipoatrophy. Yeah. Who's the, the filler got infected, and it was a whole mess. But I, I appreciate you having it in your title and, and sort of addressing it right off. I think that that's really cool. So in AIDS, AIDS Aversary 24. Uh, <laughs> hey, my silver AIDS Aversary is coming up. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Well, congratulations. You, uh, you say when writing about lessons, we should have learned from HIV to apply to COVID when you speak about poor choices of words, uh, how they can have lasting effects. And you use the example of social dist- distancing, and it never dawned on me about how, you know, really it should be physical distancing and not social distancing. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, it, 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 every time I hear the term, I realize the horse is out of the barn, <laughs> but, yeah. and it's never going to go back in. But every time I hear the term, the hair on my neck stands up. I find it extremely annoying, especially in a time and an experience like a, the COVID pandemic, we needed people to be sol- uh, you know, in solidarity with each other. Yeah. We did not need them to, to be isolated. You, know, yeah. you can be socially connected and physically distant. The term got out there. Um, the Public Health Agency of Canada corrected themselves, but it's too late. Too late. <laughs> they started saying physical distancing, but it was too late. Yeah. You know, too many people are still saying social distancing. I just find that unfortunate. And I feel like it's the product of not talking to people in the community before you put into place measures. You know, we're a little spoiled. I'd say spoiled, but it's not. It should happen. 
So it isn't spoiled. It's the way things should be. That the community is very present in HIV. That we're at the table. It was the product of a lot of hard work to have a seat at the table. Yeah. And then COVID came along and we were just shunted aside and not consulted about any of the public health measures that were being put into place. We could have told them that social distancing was an awful term and they should not use it. We could have told them that, you know, in Quebec we had a curfew. So how does a curfew apply to people who are trying to use this supervised injection site in a time when we're telling people not to inject alone at home? Right. You can't do that when the police are going to stop you. Right. So it's things like that that were just not thought of in advance that could have been thought of if we had been at that table. So I guess along the same lines around language, you mentioned how some people living with HIV in 23andMe in your other uh, blog <laughs> about how some people living with HIV describe themselves as I'm like I'm HIV instead of saying I'm HIV positive or I've acquired HIV. They just say I'm HIV. And you talk about how some people get angry or miffed about that, uh, about how people claim themselves to be HIV. And I have to say, sometimes it does catch me off guard when people say that. And what are your feelings around that? Well, well, first of all, I'm in a particular position in Quebec. So it could be, you know, when you hear it, it could just be a language thing. You know, there is that identity aspect. And there are a lot of people who are very insistent that, you know, I'm a person and I happen to have HIV. Or there are people who have whose HIV is much more central to their personal sense of self. Um, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a big part of me. Mm -hmm. I do everything I can to minimize the impact of HIV in my life, you know, in my personal life, mm -hmm. and to maximize it in my professional life. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, I still feel like it's central to my identity. And I had a discussion once with someone about if there were a cure, would you take it? Mm -hmm. And it was it was interesting. It was a little group activity that was organized in Montreal, and there were three of us debating whether or not we would take a cure if it was offered to us. And I thought, for me, there were several elements to that, that I really spent a lot of time adjusting to the idea that I have HIV, that I kind of know what I'm going to die of, <laughs> right. that I'm going to die earlier than some of my friends and siblings, but I'm not upset about that. You know, I've sort of adjusted my expectations of life. And am I ready to redo that? Mm -hmm. I think almost everyone I know with HIV has said, you know, after my diagnosis, I really went through a process of re-examining my values and deciding, determining what was important to me. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that again. Because mm. <laughs> it would be quite the conversation with yourself. Yeah. And I guess if people say, I'm HIV, it's better than saying they're HIV. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And then there's the other big terminology thing about people who are very insistent that I don't have AIDS, I have HIV. Right. And as a person who was once on a list of people who have AIDS because of my state at the time of my diagnosis, I resent that. <laughs> You know, we can all just admit that AIDS doesn't mean what it used to be. The term AIDS is no longer a prognosis. It's a very important observation that tells us you were too long before you were diagnosed or 
year or two long before having treatment. You know, today we come back from that state and you can reestablish your health. Right. So it just doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Right. But I'm still attached to it. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, in AIDS Aversary 22, you talk about this and about how organizations changing their names, like removing AIDS from their names. I mean, they may do it for other reasons as well, like for funding, do you think? Is that, is that probably the main reason? I, I think mostly they say that they're doing it so that people are not afraid to come to them. Mm. And I, I always feel a little suspicious of saying, you know, we're going to deal with stigma by hiding. <laughs> right. You know, that's essentially what it is. We're right. going to deal with the stigma associated with what we do by hiding it and calling it something else. I don't think that's helping. No, and that's a very good point. I want to finish off this interview with, well, a couple of things. One, am I mistaken or do you have another blog called The Adventures of Gaten? The Adventures of Gaetan. Gaetan. Yeah. I think it only has two or three entries. But what it was is I have a friend who's very sexually active. He's about my age. And he has very entertaining stories of his adventures. <laughs> and so I called it The Adventures of Gaetan. His name is not Gaetan. Right. When he told, you know, at one point he was with someone and he, he told them the guy his name, which is a very common English name. And the guy thought it was made up, because surely no one's named that. Right. And so <laughs> we, we both had our own chuckle and said, yeah, why isn't it a normal name like Gaetan? <laughs> so that's why it's the Adventures of Gaetan. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. I was wondering about that. Okay, so I always close off with these this or that questions. Okay. So uh, here we go. Poutine or tortillere? Oh, that's difficult. <laughs> I think tortilla is probably better for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, fair enough. Work alone or in a team? Oh. See, either or. I'm going to do the lawyer thing. Oh. Everything is a, everything is a, is a shade of gray. I like both of them for mm. different reasons. I don't think we have space on our website to put two answers, but oh. I'm just making that up. Of course we can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect teeth or perfect hair? Ooh, probably perfect hair. I can keep my lips shut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Exciting life but dangerous or boring life but meaningful? Oh. I'm, I'm not extremely adventurous, so I would have to say boring and meaningful. Okay. Attend a party or host a party? Mm. <laughs> or none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> We can go in there. Uh, attend a party briefly and do a French exit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. Thank you, Ken, for being uh -huh. on podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Pausecast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by ReachNexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based, lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.